Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and coherent foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center and a contributor to The Bulwark. And I'm joined as always by my colleague, Elliot Cohen, the Osgood Professor of Strategy at the School of Advanced International Studies of Johns Hopkins University and the Arlie Burke Chair of Strategy at CSIS. Elliot, how are you? Uh, I'm doing just fine. I'm coming into the last five weeks of my teaching career, which is a special sort of moment. Before we get launched, Eric, I thought uh, something I've been meaning to do for a while is to give a shout out to the the team that works in the back room of uh, Shield of the Republic to uh, Shea Kateri and to Robert Edelman, who make the two of us sound a lot better than we really are, don't you think? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm hopeful that Shea may interrupt us at time from time to time because our subject today is one he uh, actually has lived through as a political refugee from Iran. We're going to be doing something uh, new and different for Shield of the Republic. We've spent you and I a lot of time, Elliot, talking about Ukraine and and Russia for good and sufficient reason over the last nine months or so. But there are some pretty serious developments going on uh, in Iran. We're now in the 53rd day of protests since the murder uh, by the religious police of the morality police in Iran of a, a young Kurdish woman, 22-year-old, uh, which has sparked enormous unrest, The probably the greatest unrest uh, in Iran uh, since the formation of the Islamic Republic since the 78-79 revolution. And we have as our guest today, uh, Ray Take, uh, who is the Sabah Fellow at the Center, uh, at the Council on Foreign Relations, I should say. Ray is a a first-class Iranist, uh, has been my co-author, he's been your co-author, the three of us have written together. Ray has written a number of books, I won't bore our audience with how many, on Iran. Uh, he holds a PhD from Oxford and has written uh, one thing I do want to draw attention to our audience. Uh, he has written a very good book, The Last Shah, about the U.S.-Iranian relationship under the Pahlavi regime and the fall of the Shah. It's now in paperback, a Yale University Press paperback, so easily accessible to listeners at Amazon. He's also written a couple of columns about what's happened uh, recently, including one recently in the Wall Street Journal with Rural Direct, but also on his own, a terrific article in this month's commentary called A Second Iranian Revolution. And he's also the co-author with me of a little known book called After the Revolution about the search for an Iranian policy in recent years. So welcome, Ray. Thanks very much for having me. This is certainly an illustrious group to be part of. And after doing a lot of podcasts, I'm finally ready for the NBA. <laughs> Ray, it's it's great to have you uh, have you with us. Shame on us for not getting you here earlier. I was wondering if I could put a question actually to you, um, and also to Eric, who's been following this very closely. You know, all, I think most of us uh, who are you know, following foreign policy very closely have been fixated on the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, of course, there's our own turbulent politics that we pay lots of attention to. But but I, I wonder if you could just help us, remind us of, you know, what's the scale of the violence, of the uh, repression, and in general, just what's the status of this? Because it is a, it is a clearly a tremendous set of events. And, you know, you've written about it, putting in the context of 78, 79, but I think it would be helpful for us just to know where, where do we stand right now. So over to, sure. to you, Ray. Uh, thanks. Uh, first of all, on September 16, uh, Miss Amini was killed by uh, morality police, and this sparked uh, nationwide protests. But if you look at the summer in Iran, it was actually a very turbulent summer. I remember early in the summer calling, actually, Royal Gorek, saying there's something deeply corrosive and problematic about the summer in Iran. Everybody was protesting. Uh, the farmers were protesting about lack of water, the retirees, the teachers, the, the merchant class, uh, the women were protesting because for various reasons, the regime decided that this was a time where they were going to rigorously enforce uh, religious attire at the time in summertime when it was a heat wave. So there was something 
a spark waiting to happen. And Ms. Amini's death in September actually led to massive protests and essentially brought all these individual sectors that were protesting together in a, some sort of a cohesive nationwide movement. Since then, we have seen protests throughout the country. The Islamic Republic, unlike the Shah's regime, is actually quite adept at dealing with popular protests because it's dealt with them since 1979. In various forms, it has to deal with popular protests in the streets. The Shah regime really had not dealt with street protests since 1964, so when they took place, it was flat-footed. Uh, the Islamic Republic has had, as, as, as mentioned, much experience, and they have a kind of a well-developed strategy for dealing with this. Number one, sort of a quick use of violence as a means of deterrence, then cutting off the demonstrations from another by disabling social media connections, and then waiting for it to peter out. That playbook, as implemented, did not work, has not worked, and that has the regime rather unsettled, so they're essentially trying to figure out how to deal with this. Uh, some human rights group have suggested as much as 300 people have died, uh, been killed. Uh, so the regime is using incremental violence. That's enough to create martyrs, but not necessarily to create or establish some sort of a deterrent system. Uh, and finally, what we're seeing in regime today, when you get arrested, you get rapidly released in most cases because they don't want a scene in the prison like they had before. And they don't want demonstrations outside the prison because the average age of protesters is between 16 and 25. And so you're arresting a 17-year-old female adolescent, you bring her in, and that creates a problematic situation for you. Uh, I will say two things that we have noticed in these protests. Number one, the various social classes have come together in a single banner. They're not protesting for individual or for pay or for benefits but for dignity and, 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 and autonomy. Uh, and they seem to have lost a sense of fear that all uh, uh, autocratic regimes require in order to maintain discipline. So there's obstacles in the way of the opposition, there's obstacles in the way of the regime as they both try to navigate the situation, which is quite unpredictable at this point. I do believe, and I think I have said this in the, maybe in the commentary piece, that we're in some kind of a revolutionary stage where we are in that revolutionary trajectory, honestly, will be best understood in retrospect <laughs> when you kind of look back and you realize what the inflection points were and not. Uh, so that's essentially where we are as this event continues to unfold. There are two things that you kind of talk about in your article. One is, which I think would be very interesting for people to hear about in more detail. First, you talk about the similarity between the situation today and the 70s, which is to right. say right. we're in a period of a high global inflation, international energy crisis, a crisis brought about by Russian expansion, as, as we had in the late 70s with Afghanistan, right. uh, et cetera. I, I'd really be interested in hearing you talk about what's the same and what's different today from then. And then the other thing you talk about is the the difficulty the Shah's regime had in the late 70s in getting people in the military to actually kill their fellow Iranians. And that became really, as you describe it, and as both in this and in your terrific book, as the Achilles heel, really, of the regime. Its inability, despite the fearsome reputation of the Iranian military and the Savak, the secret police, right. its inability to actually really bring force to bear on people because the Shah wouldn't do it. And, uh, you know, what's what's happening with this regime? Because up till now, they've been willing to kill people in, you know, really reasonably high numbers if necessary to try and, as you put it, get people to back off, get protesters to back off. But how is could, that? Could I just, pile, could yeah, I just, jump in, Elliot, please. You know, I, I just want to pile on to that because, you know, I remember watching with horror in 2009 as you know, you saw these on the one hand the, these very promising large-scale demonstrations, and then you know it was just clear that the regime was very very talented at repression, and they had the technology and they had the technique down, and so they were eventually able to crush it. But this does seem different, and and I you know I was just wondering why. Well, the, the similarities between now and late seventies are, are are kind of pronounced really uh in both cases by the way eric you had aging leaders dying of cancer uh shaw got cancer in 1974 and ali khomeini has been suffering from cancer as well in both cases you have very provocative class cleavages 
Uh, in both cases, you had high degree of corruption. In both cases, you had the, the almost severance of relationship between state and society in a sense that the state had a narrative for what was happening and the society had another one. In both cases, you had economic decline, but cyclical economic decline, I think, can be exaggerated as a source for revolutionary agitation because all countries have cyclical economic decline. In late 1970, Turkey had a greater degree of economic decline than Iran did. Uh, what was similar? What is similar between the two cases is in the late 1970s and today, the economic decline is accompanied by a certain psychological neurosis, namely that the Iranian people in both cases are saying, the good times are over forever, and I didn't get mine. And the only people that got ahead were those with connections to the regime and the corruption. I think corruption is more galling and glaring when it's by a government of God, a government of God that insists on, uh, on, on sacrifice and discipline. In both cases, you had leaders the Shah and Khamenei embarking on a certain legacy project. The Shah was worried about his son taking over and therefore tried to expedite the opening of the system without understanding what that means. And Ali Khamenei has embarked on his own uh, exercise, legacy exercise by trying to refashion the economy in order to make it more resilient to sanctions, uh, international pressure, and also uh, purging the elite. Uh, only the most reliable elements have stayed. So in this case, Iran actually has something in common with President Putin's Russia and President Xi. They both have purged their elite, and therefore they, it becomes more insular and less less capable of dealing with this. Uh, now, what is different between uh, the use of corruption? Here, uh, use of violence. Uh, here we get into some area of controversy because it has been my contention that the Islamic Republic actually doesn't like to use violence against its people. Uh, even though it has done so, it tends to, in my view, view its security services with some degree of, of skepticism and hesitancy. Because after all, this is a conscript force. Uh, even the Revolutionary Guards, which are 125,000 people, I think about 10, 15% of them are uh, officer corps, and the remaining 100,000 or so, about 60,000 are conscripts and the other 40,000 are volunteers. Now they volunteer for a variety of reasons, benefits, access to universities, and in some cases just they believe in the system. And 125,000 people, by the way, is not enough to deal with the national protest movement if it's disciplined and, and continuous. And if you're looking at Iran today, they actually have been hesitant to use the Revolutionary Guards. They've been using uh, various police forces and, and so on and so forth. Uh, one, another aspect that makes violence in this particular case more difficult is because you have to shoot women. And you have to shoot adolescent females in some respects. Uh, women, six, it's hard for a conscript to shoot a 16-year-old. Uh, uh, and it's a situation they have to deal with every day when a 16-year-old comes and cuts her hair and says, that to Khamenei. Uh, and this is a situation you encounter every day. And one of the things that the Shah's regime was most concerned regarding is military. And one of the things that his generals were most concerned was as you deploy the military to the street day after day, the psychological battering that they would take, the demoralization and the difficult task of repressing civilian populations day in and day out. Uh, the, the, the psychological pressure was huge in terms of the conception of, of controlling the society. I do believe, now, as I said, this is the point of some degree of contention and controversy. There are those who believe that the Islamic Republic is ruthless and can't actually enforce its mandate through the use of force. I tend to be more skeptical of that. Uh, if you look at how they have dealt with ethnic enclaves, uh, they've been more ruthless than they are in, in, in the rest of the country. Uh, to me, to some extent, that maybe resonates with the experience of the Shah generals and the Shah himself, who were reluctant to use force because they were not entirely certain of the reliability of their security forces and as this thing evolves and matures, if it matures, by the way, then the regime is going to have a very difficult security challenge in front of it and has to deal with the same psychological backlash and prospects of demoralization that the Shah's regime dealt with. Uh, I mean, you, Eric and uh, uh, Elliot, you know militaries better than I do. I, it is my opinion that militaries, national armies don't like to shoot their own people. That's a difficult task for them to discharge. And particularly given the fact that this is a youthful protest movement, 
although it features other classes as well as it enlarges. That's a difficult task for you to do. I think it was difficult for the Chinese to do it in Tiananmen Square. So this is a heavy burden on the security services, in my opinion. Now, there are others who believe that you can call upon the military and actually repress these demonstrations should it, should it choose to do so. My question is why they haven't done so. They, they don't want this to go on. This is, it keeps going on. Uh, there's a lot of protests. There's a lot of members of the elite who are beginning to defect subtly. I think Ruel and I wrote about that. So as this mature, the regime's elite cohesion attenuates, the regime's security forces become battered, and you begin to see fissures within the ruling body, if not the political society. So they don't want this to continue. Yet it continues, and they haven't been able to stop it through the use of force and the determination that is often attributed to them. But I, I fully am aware of the fact that there are different points of view on this issue. Is, is it continuing at the same level, Ray? That is, you know, you, you said that the regime's strategy depends on the idea that, you know, after a few months, these things peter out. Is that happening? Well, it's, it's, it's exhaustive because the demonstrations may not be large, but they're persistent. So you still have to essentially use your security forces just to disperse them, because if not, they continue and continue. Uh, this is not to suggest that the opposition's path to power is easy or effortless or without obstacles. The, uh, the social protest movements usually don't succeed. Uh, it's very rare, actually, that they do. The challenges before the opposition are actually quite significant. Uh, number one, it really has to develop some kind of a leadership. Every revolution requires revolutionaries. It has to be more persistent in a sense that it has to enlarge and encompass more of the other social classes. And it has to be willing to confront the regime all the time. I mean, you know, all revolutions ebb and flow, and this will also ebb. In two weeks, there's soccer, and everybody in the country is going to be in the house. So uh, I do think the most formidable challenge that the movement has is to develop some kind of a leadership, some kind of a platform. Without that, it's hard for me to see how they would succeed. Uh, so the, the obstacles in, in, front of the, uh, in front of this protest movement are not insignificant in any way. And they have embarked on a journey who, honestly, whose conclusions are uncertain. I want to bring Ray, uh, Shay in, Ray, uh, in a second, because sure. uh, I think he may have a somewhat contrary view to, to what you just yeah. articulated. But before we bring Shay in, you make a fascinating point in the commentary article about the Rex Cinema yeah, right. fire in the summer of, I think it was August 78. And yeah. uh, you make the point, by the way, which I think is important, that that fire in the end turned out to have been started actually mm -hmm. by, by Islamists, uh, yeah. but, but that Khomeini uh, used it very effectively to depict the Shah as you know, ineffective, uncaring. And the point you make that I think is relevant here is that it became an inflection point because a lot of people who were sitting on the fence about the regime and its future decided at that point that the regime was doomed and that they would throw in their lot with yeah. the, the revolution at large, which at the time was not just Khomeini and Islamists, but also liberals and, and the bourgeoisie and the bazaar and a, a bunch of other factors as well. So are we at that kind of inflection point here? I mean, is this is this a point where people are going to kind of basically make their ultimate judgment about whether they want this regime to continue or not? Or are we somewhere you know short of that? The Rex Cinema was a, a movie theater in Abadan. Uh, and it was shown a film, I think, Deer. It was an experimental Persian film that had finally managed to get by uh, censors. And about 470 people, I think, were killed in that act of arson. Uh, it was the most egregious act of arson in history of Iran up to that time. And one of the things that Khomeini and oppositionists managed to do is to suggest that the Shah was responsible for that. And that essentially undermined the Shah's ability to negotiate with the opposition because he was viewed as unreliable. And anybody who can set his own people on fire cannot be a reliable interlocutor in, in, in sort of expansion of the, the, the representation. Uh, what I suggested, and by the way, Eric, if you go back to August 78, and one of the things that the Islamic Republic has done is release a lot of the Shah's government's records, including the records of the secret police, uh, which I have them right here in back, if you can see them. 
And if you if you look at the Samok files from August 1978, there's no indication that anybody thought that was an inflection point. If you look at the U.S. State Department and CIA traffic at that time, there was no indication that anybody thought this was an inflection point. What I'm trying to say, inflection points become inflection points in retrospect. <laughs> when you kind of see it, it's like, okay, that was the time when re- the demonstrations went from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands. That was a time when the Iranian people in large measure believed that the monarchy was irredeemable. But in a lot of ways, that's a retrospective judgment. Now, I tend to, in the commentary piece, speculated that Ms. Amini's death had a similar galvanizing effect for the following reason. Because it was the first time that the Iranians were not protesting for their own benefits. For instance, the farmers aren't today protesting because they lack water because the regime uh, diverse water resources for industrial purposes. They're all under the same slogan, women, autonomy, liberty, and so on. So everybody has kind of come together under the same slogan. We have gone from parochial class uh, protests to a citizenry. We're all against this regime. So they have subsumed their individual grievances under the same banner of opposition to regime and extinction of the regime. Uh, not reform, not dialogue, not anything, but the Islamic Republic must go root and branch. And you didn't see that before. You didn't see that in 2009, where it was about franchise and it was about voting and uh, not that the protests didn't mature. You didn't see that in 2019, which before this, the regime has had identified as the most serious protest it faced because it was revolt of the poor. And the Islamic Republic, like the Communist Party, don't like revolt of the labor class. <laughs> because, you know, hovel and playwrights are one thing, but solidarity is a whole different thing. Uh, Charter 77 is one thing, but solidarity is different. So, uh, but today, all the, so all the protesting classes have come together under the same banner and for the same purpose. That doesn't mean they succeed, but that hadn't happened before. And this is what, to Elliot's point, makes this different from previous round of protests, as significant as they were. Because in the previous round of protests, the Islamic Republic systematically shed constituencies in 1999, in 2009, in 2017, 2019. But now everybody has come together under the same banner. To me, that's novel, new, and dangerous for the regime. Now, Shay would like to have say something in disagreement with me, but it was my understanding that that is not permissible. <laughs> uh, my contract said that's not permissible. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know. Shay, you have a view, an alternate view? Yes. So if you don't I mind, mind I mind very much. I, can't, another... I just said it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, I was talking about Eric, if he doesn't mind. <laughs> Uh, I I want to draw another parallel between 1970s and today, which is in the 1960s, we pretty much, we, the United States, forced uh, certain land reform policies on the Shah that results in massive unemployment. Peasants come to the city and see a tension of values between the elites and the regime, which is very secular, and the um, peasants who are very religious. We are seeing the same tension uh, tension uh, between values again today between a regime now that is very religious and a nation that is very secular. So that's another piece of the puzzle to add. But the difference between the 1970s and today is that there was almost a millennium ago a uh, an Iranian political theorist, Nizam al-Mulk, who wrote a book called Story of Politics. And he writes that the right way to govern and how Iran has traditionally been governed is to have parallel institutions to rival against each other. So none plots against you. And if one does, the other one comes to your rescue. And that was not how the Shah governed, which allowed for the revolution. It was very unified. And Iran doesn't, does have that uh, Nizam al-Mulk theory of parallel uh, security forces today. You have two two intelligence agencies. You have two militaries. You have two po- uh, police forces, essentially. And within them, they are also factionalized. I like to say that Iran is a Madisonian autocracy, actually. And uh, if you go back to 1980, I believe, uh, there was an attempted coup by Artesh, the regular military. 
And after that, it's the Nojeku. After that, the head of the IRGC is replaced and uh, Mohsen Rezai, who's still a uh, senior person in the regime, becomes the head of the IRGC, completely repurposes it. And it becomes the monster that it has become today to become a rival of Artesh because the regime realized Artesh cannot be relied on. The Artesh being the, the regular army. Yes, yes, the regular military. And you have the IRGC to be a rival and you have, again, the factions within the IRGC. And I I just, I wonder, uh, Ray, to, uh, in your analysis, is there any possibility that all levers of the IRGC uh, would give up? And then on top of that, I must add that you have the Mosaic Defense Doctrine, that they implemented it to pretty much defend against us to have an insurgency in case of a U.S. invasion, but that mosaic defense could uh, be used against revolutionaries too. First of all, you you, you began by <laughs> suggesting correctly that the population was secular, but the regime was religious. But the regime is religious in an extraordinary hypocritical way, in the sense that it's religious in terms of presentation, but it's profoundly corrupt. Uh, and that, as I said, doesn't sit well with the population or anybody, given given the massive level of corruption, which actually impedes economic growth. What I would say about the security forces as such, and this is very difficult because we don't know a whole lot about them and how they structured and so forth. But if you look at the regime's conduct since these demonstrations began, the latest demonstrations, and the regime's rhetoric suggests that these are manufactured from abroad, the United States, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and so forth, that narrative is contested within the Islamic Republic itself. It's, it's actually denied across the board. And some of the most trenchant criticism of the regime's narrative comes from the Iranian press, Hassan Rouhani's own webpage and so on. But the regime's rhetoric is maximalist, but his conduct has actually been more permissive. And they tend to arrest people and release them. And even the way they're beginning to talk about the protests Ali Khamenei did so, I think, on Friday when he met with students. They're suggesting that these are foreign-inspired, but you who are protesting are still our children. So you're errant, and we want we want to we want to essentially bring you back to the fold and bring you in. The gap between rhetoric and conduct is called the credibility gap, and this is what undid the Shah to some extent. Is you know his conduct and rhetoric did not sit together and 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 that actually emboldened the opposition so if you're looking at what the regime is doing if you're an average citizen in any country in any repressive state the hardest thing for you to do is decide when to become a dissident and potentially an oppositionist the journey from a disgruntled citizen to a dissident to an opposition it's a very difficult journey to make. It's a profoundly difficult choices for people to abandon their allegiances. And the speed by which the Iranians have made that is actually quite extraordinary. If you look at the 78-79 revolution, the call for end of the monarchy doesn't really come until fall of 1978. Before that, there's Khomeini is a maximalist, but almost everybody else was willing to negotiate with the Shah. So in that particular sense, I think the regime seems to lack confidence in its security services because otherwise they wouldn't suddenly change narratives from these are foreign inspired. The head of the Revolutionary Guard, General Eslami said, everybody go home, no more protests to, oh, our errant children, let's talk about this. This kind of a tentativeness, I think only emboldens people toward joining the opposition as opposed to not. Uh, so in that sense, the regime's conduct is some way similar to the Shah in the sense that it's, it, 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 it is unsure about how to deal with the protesters. And in my opinion, it is unsure about its capability to repress. And this is why suddenly you see a change in the rhetoric, which actually paradoxically will embolden the opposition, in my opinion, as opposed to tranquilize it. I very much take your point, Ray, about, you know, you, you don't know the inflection point until you're looking at it with hindsight. But having said that, I don't want to let you off the hook. 
And I was wondering if you'd be willing to just speculate a bit on what are the ways in which this could unfold in such a way that the regime ends up, you know, even either being ejected or somehow so transformed that we're, we're effectively dealing with a very different Iranian state than the one we've been dealing with, you know, for the last 40 odd years. Yeah, uh, Sheikh can speak about this. I don't believe the Islamic Republic can transform. I don't believe it can reform itself. I don't think anybody in Iran thinks it can reform itself. Nobody's asking for reform. Uh, nobody's asking for, uh, you know, uh, uh, elections and referendums and plebiscites as a means of expansion of the political space. That was a 1990s argument that is largely exhausted. So it, it, there's no reforming of this system as far as its constituents are concerned. Now, there are kind of, there are kind of two ways of looking at these uprisings. Uh, and as I said, we're in the middle of it, and beginning of it, or somewhere in it, so it's difficult. Is the new Iranian revolution a 20th century revolution or a 21st century revolution? Now, what do I mean by that? In 20th century revolutions, you had, whether it's the Russian, the Chinese, the Iranian, the Cubans, or whatever, you had actually a small percentage of the population participating. I think in 1989, it was 1%. I think in case of Iran in 1978-79 was 3-4%. And you had a social protest movement and revolutionaries with utopian ideas, whether they were Marxists and sort of mastering the historical forces or the redemptive politics of Islamism or anti-colonialism, Algeria, and sort of a return to tradition. And so when those revolutions succeeded, it was root and branch because a new vision came in, new institutions and new elites. The 21st century revolutions, to the extent that we have an example, would be the Arab Spring. And actually, if you look at Arab Spring, the popular participation was far greater than 20th century revolutions. In Tunisia, it was 16%. In Egypt, it was 8%. But these were young people connected with social media without overarching organization. And they were not there for root and branch organ, root and branch revolution. So first of all, is which is this? Are, are we looking at a 21st century movement or a 20th century movement? To understand inflection points, you have to kind of try to anchor it. I tend to anchor it in Iran's own experience. I tend to look at this through the prism of 1978-79, which, by the way, may not be the right prism. <laughs> but that's how I look at it within a national context. Now, uh, so once you kind of figure out what kind of a revolution this is, then you can respond to the question of how does this end? What comes afterwards? Uh, if they manage to succeed, then I think we have a very different Iran. Uh, I think within Iran itself, there are ingredients for participatory politics. There's civil society. The Persians are forever organizing themselves in groups, trade unions, lawyer guilds, doctors guild. Even 40 diplomats signed a letter opposing the Ukraine policy of the regime. Uh, so there are, not to be Pollyannish about this, but there are ingredients within the Iranian society in terms of literacy, in terms of political participation of past 40 years, and some degree of political maturity so they can create institutions of some measure of participation. If you look at the Iranian history in 20th century and into 21st century, this sort of a mega theory of history, in my opinion, it's a struggle between a population seeking accountable government and regimes that don't wish for that to succeed. That's a tension in Iranian history. And in most cases, the national governments win. <laughs> uh, they didn't win in 1979, but they ultimately win. So that historical journey is what is, I, I, I attach this revolutionary movement to that historical aspiration. Accountable government. Now, what representative modality it would take, I don't know but it'd be very different than the current Islamic regime. Uh, so I don't think it'll reform. If it collapses, I think it's root and branch. But it, so much of this at this point is speculation that it's almost difficult to answer that question with any degree of precision. And I realize that's very frustrating. It's frustrating for your listeners. It's frustrating for everybody else to say, well, we're in the middle of a movement whose conclusion is uncertain, but we're hopeful that it will succeed. Ray, let me <laughs> ask I, you... I, I, as you know, I tend to be optimistic about the future. Yeah. Uh, but let me ask you this, though. The generally optimistic picture you paint of, you know, robust right, right. 
uh, Iranian civil society, which is something we wrote about in the article you and I wrote for uh, Foreign Affairs two years ago, which advocated regime change as an affirmative U.S. policy objective for Iran. Well, Eric, it advocated not regime change, it's supporting the Iranian people in their quest to change their regime. Correct. Yeah, but there is a, but Eric, there's a subtle difference there. There is a subtle difference, although it's been endorsed by the president of the United States now, who said the Iranians are going to change their regime and we're all for it. Uh, even though his staff minions, like everything else he says, have tried to walk it back. So so my question, though, to you is this. You said in your comments that we have to sort of figure out, is this a kind of 20th century kind yeah. of revolution uh, or 21st century? If you compare the outcome you've described, that's very different from what we've seen in the Arab Spring, where I think most people would say, What's happened, you know, after a decade of political turmoil in the Arab countries is, in the end of the day, not much change. You know, right, right, very, very exactly, exactly. If you if you look at Tunisia or Egypt or certainly Syria, but other places, there's oh, not yeah. been much change. So, so well, this is kind of different, and is that difference because of their Persians not Arabs, or what? What's the difference? Well, if you look at what the Egyptian protest movement was calling for. They were calling for change of personnel. And when President Mubarak resigned, the committee of coordination, whatever it was called, said, okay, everybody go home. Because the military agreed to civilian transition, and then the military aborted that civilian transition. So you take Egypt, they were not actually calling for dismantling of the state's institution. They were calling for a change of personnel. And, you know, other, other, other grievances as well, like corruption and, and so forth and so on. Uh, that's not the demand of the street in, ter- in Iran today. They're calling for the extinction and end of the regime. So right there, Eric, the demands of the two protest movements are different. Uh, there are similarities. The similarities at this point, both were driven by young people. had the sympathy, support of other classes. The, but the Egyptian and Tunisian revolution had support of the poor, the women, the aggrieved, and everybody else. Uh, but they're similar in a sense that at this point, the engine that moving this forward are the young people. They are similar in a sense that the point of connection is social media. And they are similar in a sense that they don't have identifiable leaders. They're different in terms of the national experience that has led to the rise of this movement. I don't say that Iranian protest movement began in September 2022. I say it begins much later. The Islamic Republic has persistently shed constituencies. And now all those constituencies have amalgamated under a single umbrella. So the national context that has produced these protest movements are different than those of Tunisia and Egypt. But there are also similarities. Uh, This is not... As I said, there is no reason at this point to suggest that the collapse of the Islamic Republic is immediate. There is reason to suggest that the durability of the regime that was taken for granted in Western intellectual circles up to two weeks ago, it can't be questioned. As you mentioned, it was questioned by the president of the United States and others. So that's a change. But but yeah, I mean, mean, there are similarities and there are differences. And as I said, when I was trying to think whether they're 20th century or 21st century revolution, you can take different points of view, pick one or the other at this point. But certainly, I, I, I think there are resonances between the two, uh, the Arab Spring and the Iranian uh, protest movement as well. And that, that, that's the negative in the situation. Yeah. Can I add one more point of pessimism? Uh, the... well, am I the only <laughs> revolutionary here? <laughs> Yeah, well, you, you you stumbled into a den of pessimists, I'm afraid, right? That's it's one of the common themes, I'm afraid, of Shield of the Republic, at least for the last year. Uh, the other point I want to add is the difference between the the current situation for regime elites and uh, the Shah and his elite, also the Tunisian elite, let's say, or the Egyptian elite, which is... Uh, the revolutionaries are quite bloodthirsty against the elites of the regime. They have made it very clear that they will suffer uh, quite severe consequences for their participation in oppressing people. And that's a, po- that's a point well taken by the leaders in the Islamic Republic. And unlike the Shah, whose elite who remained in Iran, 
suffered severe consequences by the people who are in charge right now and remember what happened. Uh, they don't have anywhere to go. Unlike uh, Ben Ali, who I think went to UAE, I think, she, Orthodox Shiites have very limited options to go. They cannot go to Los Angeles. Uh, and I'm not talking about the IRGC. I'm mostly talking about someone like Yazdi, uh, uh, who is a cleric. Uh, Orthodox Shiites have few places to go. They cannot go to Iraq or Lebanon. Those countries are unstable and will become more uh, hostile to Shiites after the Islamic Republic collapses. And they cannot go why to Venezuela to or Shiite? Russia. Why, why can't they go to Moscow, St. Petersburg, Shanghai? Yeah, they could Asia. go to Russia. They, I mean, they could I mean, replace I mean, some of the people that have left Russia because of the mobilization. But but here's the question. Uh, one, uh, you're an Orthodox Shiite. Uh, there's no Shiite population. The second thing is that w- would you trust the stability of the Putin regime right now? Well, you know, actually, well, I, you've, you've, yeah. you've actually... Uh, gotten us, Shay, to a place I wanted to go with Ray anyway. So let's maybe explore that, which is the Russia-Iran connection. I mean, Iran has emerged, along with North Korea, as one of the major military suppliers of Russia in the wake of the depletion of Russian stocks of precision-guided munitions, the difficulty Russia's having replacing them because of sanctions, uh, and, and in particular of export controls, which have made it very difficult for them to get their hands on semiconductors. I mean, the Iranians have a very highly developed system of sanctions evasion. I think in one of the articles you wrote with uh, with your uh, wife, uh, Suzanne Maloney, who's also a, a, a very important Iran uh, expert, I think years ago in international affairs, you wrote that Iran is the most sanctioned country in the world. So they've had a long, long time to develop kind of tools of sanctions evasion. They've developed these uh, capable systems, the, you know, the uh, Shahid 136, uh, Mohajir 6, uh, these uh, uh, drones, some with multiple warheads. I mean, these are very sophisticated systems. And they're now talking about transferring actual medium range ballistic missile systems uh, Fata 110s and and others to Russia. What is? Can you explain what drives that? Is that payback for the role Russia played in Syria in coordination with Ghassan Soleimani, or is it as Robin Wright recently suggested in the New Yorker, or is it something something else going on here? Is this an access of authoritarians that's emerging? What what exactly is going on? The relationship with Russia is is important and contentious. Uh, as I mentioned, 40 former diplomats signed a letter saying, why are we doing this? If you look at what the Iranians have done, uh, you, you cited it, they actually have sent munitions and personnel into a battlefield arena outside the Middle East. Now, that's that. talk about inflection points. That's one of them in terms of their international orientation. They are essentially aiding the Russian government's aggression in Ukraine, and implicitly, they're at war with NATO in, in some implicit way. Uh, so why are they doing this? I don't think you can look at this as merely a point in Russian-Iranian relationship, because if you look at memoir literature, and Shea tries to get me as many memoirs as he can, is that the Russians throughout the nuclear negotiations had always told the Iranians, don't count on us in Security Council. Do not count on us. And there were a lot of grievances about that. The Russians, from the Iranian perspective, and that's in Rouhani's memoir. This is on the nuclear issue you're talking about. In yes, the yeah, they didn't really. The, the relationship deepened at military, military level in the Syrian uh, civil war. And now it has actually transcended beyond the Middle East. But here's, in my opinion, uh, if you look at the sum total of commentary coming out of Iran, Ali Khamenei and others, they essentially are viewing the new partnership emerging between the new axis of evil, Iran, Russia, and China, that this is essentially a basis of new alliance. This alliance will have its own privileged trading zone. It will have its own banking system. It will have its own military relationship, and it will have its own animosities, namely toward the West. The purpose of this alliance would be to immunize all three countries from pressure from the West in terms of economic penetration and sanctions, so in this sense, in the Iranian conception, their involvement in Russia, it presages a new international system 
or a, a subsystem within the existing order. Ali Khamenei actually said in his Friday speech that America is a declining power and a new rising, we see new rising powers. And all three leaderships, uh, Presidents Xi and Putin and Ali Khamenei, tend to explain their predicament through the prism of conspiracies. And Ali Khamenei has this crackpot economic theory called economy of resistance, which essentially impoverishes Iran in order for it to become self-determined and autonomous. Amazingly enough, that seems to be President Xi's economic policy. <laughs> so you usually don't want to emulate Ali Khamenei's economic system. Now, I do think, Eric, that the Iranians are exaggerating this. Uh, I think they would benefit from this alignment more so than the Russians and certainly the Chinese. But this idea of, as, as Shay said, uh, Eastern orientation, which actually began to evolve in 2005 6 uh, paradoxically enough, by Ali, Ali Larajani, who's now basically exiled. The idea of reorienting Iran to the Eastern Bloc. And this actually creates more divisions between state and society, because as the state seeks to reorient its trading partners and strategic relationships to the East, the public is still very much Western-oriented. So this actually further redounds, in my opinion, to the disadvantage of the regime. Nobody in Iran can understand why the Islamic Republic is involving itself in Ukraine. And there's very trenchant commentary against that, including in Aftaba News, which is Ali, which is Hassan Rouhani's website. So this is something that you have to understand a certain conception evolving, which I do think, I don't know if your opinions are, I do think the Iranians are exaggerating the, uh, the birth of this new order and this new alignment. But I think I'm, I'm situating the Russia move in that context, Eric, as opposed to sort of a, a sort of intensification of cooperation in Syria. So, if I could run with that for a bit, I mean, it, it seems to me, you know, that that given that that's actually sort of a pipe dream. I mean, right. you know, <laughs> given what the Iranian economy is, frankly, given what the Russian economy is, given deep historical antipathies and so on and so forth. You know, I look at this and I say, wow, this is really in America's interest to have that regime go down. And uncharacteristically, I, as an outsider who knows very little, I'm somewhat more optimistic because what you've been painting is a picture of a regime that is has only gotten more unpopular, that has only found it more and more difficult to contain insurrectionary violence. Um, which doesn't fully trust its own security services and, you know, which has a society that is, if anything, more resolutely Western looking than it was before. So uh, the first conclusion I draw from all this is that I have no idea what the CIA is doing uh, to, you know, help further the revolution along, but whatever it is, they ought to quintuple it and get the Israelis to help out too. But I wonder if we might talk a little bit about what would the world like look like if the regime does go down? You know, accepting that that might be a very bloody and chaotic event. And, you know, I guess my, you know, my feeling would be from the point of view of the Iranian people, this would be a lot better, uh, ultimately. But, but also, you know, from the point of view of what the world looks like, you know, and I throw it, I guess, over to you, Eric. It, it seems to me there are all kinds of good things that flow from this. And I don't just mean for the Middle East and the Persian Gulf, but the, you know, the, the broader relationship between the United States, Russia and China, you know, if, if that kind of budding alliance is uh, broken, if you don't have the Iranians making mischief all over the world, if instead they become, uh, you know, a partner that you can work with in, in some measure, uh, it just seems to me it really has a potentially transformative effect on world order. So actually, let me throw that at you, Eric, if I might. I know I, I agree with that. And I mean, among other things, and this is a point that our former colleague at Zeiss, Frank Fukuyama, has made about the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which is the defeat of Russia in Ukraine. And therefore, by extension now, because as Ray has just told us, Iran has gotten into this fight on the side of Russia in Ukraine. The you know, support for the Iranian people to change the regime uh, in a more democratic way, that changes the whole kind of a balance of uh, forces in the, in the autocracy 
democracy kind of side of, of this, which I think is in world order terms, extremely important uh, because we've been through, you know, a decade of what people have called the democratic recession. This would be the first signs that democracy was really more on the offense rather than on the defense. Uh, and, and this was a ra- this was a, a wave, the so-called third wave of democratization in the late 70s and early 80s that Ronald Reagan rode as part of his foreign policy. So I think it's got huge, you know, uh, global order uh, elements to it. And, and so, Ray, I mean, to Elliot's point, what should the Biden administration be doing? A- am I the only one who thinks that given what's happening in the streets of over 200 cities in Iran, given what Iran is doing that you've just described in uh, conjunction with Russia and Ukraine, that it still makes sense to be pursuing a arms control arrangement in Vienna that was already flawed. Well, that, that never makes sense. Does that, does that make <laughs> sense as a policy? I mean, the, the uh, short answer is you're not alone, Eric. <laughs> well, first of all, Eric, that never made sense. Uh, second of all, when people ask me, what should Biden administration do? I say in May, June 2020, we wrote the article in which it went into all that, Eric. If you recall, uh, what steps the United States should take? I do. Uh, so there, there, there is a blueprint. Uh, I, I would say uh, uh, the following. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, there has been, uh, first of all, the rhetoric is important. Uh, I do think the amplification of this, uh, speaking out about this, and not, not just, just the president. I, th- I think we tend to be too exclusive to uh, just looking at the presidency. But, you know, every congressman, every senator, Every, every civil society activist, actors, musicians, uh, I, I kind of like to think that the uh, external support for the uh, opposition in Iran ideally should look at the anti-apartheid movement, uh, which actually, as you recall, Eric, pressured the government and even, even let the United States Senate to override President Reagan's veto in 1986 on the anti-apartheid measure, I believe. It's one of, the, uh, one of the examples that people always use when they say sanctions actually can work and have a policy of, you know, effect. So I think, first of all, it is the obligation of all of us to be supportive. The president obviously matters more than I do, but it is not an obligation exclusive to the executive branch. Is Congress, is state legislature, is civil society leaders, is university professors. It, it is all of us. Uh, and I, I, if we come together in that sort of a solidarity, I think that actually creates a certain political realities. Now, to, to deal with your uh, question, uh, there's attempts to mobilize uh, social media connectivity within the opposition. But let me just say one thing. As Shay knows, the security services also use social media. They use WhatsApp or WhatsChat, a clubhouse, whatever these things are. So as we expedite the ability of the opposition to stay connected, we should attempt to retard the ability of the security services to stay connected. So in that sense, finally, I would say, uh, I say two more things, actually. Number one, as if some kind of an organization evolves, and by the way, Eric, it may have evolved already and just not be obvious to me. There may be some sort of an organizational network that's driving this. Somebody came up with that slogan. You mean inside Iran? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I, as we wrote in the piece, we, we should try to essentially make connections to that. Finally, go to your arms control issue. This is not an arms control affair today. It never was. There is no arms control that we could or should accept. Uh, I think the worst thing that the United States can do at this point is to enter the negotiations and prospectively some kind of an agreement. And here's what I would say. There's one thing that the Iranian regime is doing that's very clever. Uh, It is doing two things on the nuclear front. First of all, they're expanding their nuclear activities, uh, advanced centrifuges and so on. At the same time, at least four times publicly, they have asked for negotiations uh, publicly. Uh, Their EU representative uh, Iran's ambassador to EU submitted a request to the European Union for negotiations. The head of the Atomic Agency on two occasions called for resumption of negotiations, and the spokesperson for foreign ministry has done so at least on two occasions. This is what they're saying publicly. And as you know, Eric, there's a lot of private chatter that goes through, you know, intermediaries that come through and, and with their own proposals. 
So I think what the Iranian government is going to confront the Biden administration and the, and, and the, and the West, the Europeans, is to increase the nuclear danger, while at the same time offer to have a negotiations. The purpose of these negotiations, I, I just meant to share, I'll get to you, I, I apologize uh, uh, for being long-winded. Uh, I think that, look, if the, the Iranian regime believes that these protests are provoked by the foreigners, so if you want to subside them, you talk to foreigners. <laughs> uh, that's who you talk to. The Shah thought that CIA was overthrowing him, so he wanted to talk to Saibans. <laughs> He wanted to talk to Warren Christopher. <laughs> Those were interlocutors that he thought mattered. And one of the things that the Iranian regime has done is try to entice the United States into some sort of a diplomacy, while at the same time threatening the Saudis. Because they also believe the Saudis and the Saudi networks and so on are, uh, uh, are activating these opposition movements. All revolutionary movements ebb and flow. There'll be a period of time when Iran will appear stable. And the incentive for resumption of negotiations at that time, I think, will be irresistible to the Biden administration. But that's just my view. I hope that's not true. Shay, go ahead. Let me add a very quick point also on sanctions that if you see at what the protesters are chanting on the street, there has been no anti-US, no anti-sanction not even really an economic chance. All you hear are political anti-regime chance. And the and the second point I want to add is that there was a survey. There's a survey center out of uh, Hague, I believe. It's a it's run by two Iranian political scientists called Gaman. And one one thing they asked Iranians was, what do you blame to be the key factor in your economic conditions? And ninety percent responded, internal economic structure. And I think 6% said sanctions, something like that. Uh, so Iranians don't blame sanctions for the economic problems they have. But what it is happening is that they are, to some extent, impoverishing the Iranian population. But what they are doing is also impoverishing the Islamic Republic so they cannot hire security forces to crack down on protesters inside. And what they are doing right now is bringing in Hashd uh, al-Shabi uh, forces from Iraq. They have brought in uh, Fatimiyun Brigade, who are Afghans in the past. Hezbollah, I, in 2009, I'm quite sure that I witnessed uh, personally uh, Arab operatives, uh, people who were speaking Arabic, uh, because they don't have money to hire security well, forces that, that is, that is not, not a sign of a strong regime, by the way. No, it's not, and that, that's that's another problem that the regime has, which is you can you cannot crack down on your own people because your security forces hate you politically, and you cannot pay them. What's uh, left? By, by one of the things, uh, the level of uh, I want to highlight this if I can very briefly. The level of criticism that the regime is getting inside is actually quite staggering. It's a known it's a known press. Uh, I don't know if you saw the shit. Uh, last week, the sort of a, a moderate newspaper, Etimad, published the opinion poll about what Iranians think. And it said uh, 65% uh, agree with the protesters, 10% agree with uh, rioters. I, I don't know if that poll was actually scientifically commissioned. They may have just made it up. But what are they saying? That about 70% of the Iranian population agree with the protesters. What are the protesters asking for? What are they asking for? Extinction of the Islamic Republic. That's not in, 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 in that's that's not in Wall Street Journal editorial page. That's in Iranian newspaper front page. The level of criticism that the regime is getting is extraordinary, which leads me to believe they have lost the ability to con concoct a convincing narrative or control countervailing narratives. And the Shah first lost his narrative, then lost his bearing. Well, let's hope that's what happens. We've, I think reached the end of our time, Ray. Uh, this has been uh, really terrific. It's been uh, great to have you join us, but we're on day 53 of this. I, I suspect that this story is going to continue. So we hope we can have you back uh, down the road. We might want to try and find, there are a few expat Iranian women in the United States. And since, as you pointed out, this is a revolution driven by youth and by women. We've got the youth represented in, in our own producer, oh, Shea Kateri, it's not me. Thank it's not me. <laughs> for for, for uh, chiming in today. 
Um, by the way, uh, Shay's uh, Substack on Russia and Iran is is well worth your attention if if you're interested in the issues we've been talking about today. Ray's book, The Last Shah, is something everybody interested in this subject should read. I won't bother flogging our Hoover book. It's now overtaken by events. But I, I, I really I want to thank uh, you and, and Shay, you as well, for helping two old codgers like me and Elliot in, improve our knowledge of uh, what's going on in Iran. Elliot, any any uh, last words of wisdom you want to impart? No, I just want to say it's uh, it, this is an education uh, because the truth is, I mean, even those of us who have been uh, dismayed by the twists and turns of American uh, nuclear diplomacy on Iran, I think have sort of lost sight of the, the larger question of what's going on underneath the surface uh, and the question of the, you know, the essential fragility of the regime. And, you know, thank you both for uh, giving us a real education. But this could be a good news story depending on how it ends. So let's, let's keep the, you know, optimism, uh, keep hope alive as uh, some American politician once said, and, uh, Hopefully you'll be back and uh, our listeners will rejoin us for Shield of the Republic. If you've enjoyed this episode or earlier episodes of Shield of the Republic, please give us a review on online wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have uh, questions, please uh, send them to us at shieldoftherepublic at gmail.com. We read all the emails and thank people for putting these questions to us. We do try to get to answers to some of them uh, as we go through our our podcast, we can't obviously answer each individual request. But with that, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me.